Thank you very much, Daisy. And it, it was wonderful to have Anne's presentation um, before this one because it's so um, uh, so complementary. Um, you know, the, the haunting thing about the recent American election, as Anne alluded to, was that over 70 million people voted for Donald Trump, including 57% of white Americans. Uh, that was 8 million more than voted for him in 2016, implying that somehow what he had represented or what he had done or not done appealed in, in even greater um, intensity. And equally haunting were the pluralities um, whereby the blue states, with the exception of the, the handful that we are all watching so closely, Georgia and Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Michigan, but the others went with huge pluralities, the blue states to the Democrats by 30 points, the red states to the Republicans by an equal margin. So this chasm in America um, is ongoing and, and as Anne said, has been exasperated by the actions uh, at the moment of the um, outgoing Trump administration. But the article that, I, that, that Daisy referenced uh, came about in a kind of quixotic way. I had been asked to write about COVID, but I didn't really feel I had much new to say um, until I was paddling my kayak around our small island here, when I suddenly started thinking that here we were, whereby a microorganism 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt had literally commandeered our biology, even as it attacked the connectivity and, and community uh, and bonds of reciprocity that are for the human species, what teeth and claws represent the tiger. And I, I thought that COVID wasn't really a story of medicine or public health or morbidity and mortality alone. It was fundamentally a story of culture. So I quickly wrote this essay, sent it to my old friend, Jan Wenner, um, and it came out in Rolling Stone and it just hit some kind of nerve. It trended for five weeks. It had 5 million readers on the website itself, over 680 uh, million social media impressions. I mean, my, my Wikipedia site, which had been quite morbid uh, with 140 visits a day, suddenly had 4,000 people searching out um, some information. So it hit this nerve and, and some of the critiques of it uh, almost suggested that I was trying to be uh, deliberately anti-American. Nothing could be further from the truth. I chose to become an American. My wife is an American. My children are raised in the United States. All my education came from the States. My own son-in-law is an active duty, an officer in the US Navy. So the article is more like a love letter to the country. You know, the first step of an intervention is when you hold a mirror to the loved one to try to show them what's become themselves. Only by seeing that, can you take the first step on the path of rehabilitation? You know, pandemics have a way of shifting um, the course of history. The Black Death killed half of Europe and it led to uh, a demand for labor, which ra raised expectations, which led of course to the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which overthrew a medieval order that had been in place in Europe for over a thousand years. And I think COVID will be remembered as one of those similar fulcrums in history, a seminal event whose significance only becomes apparent 
um, down the road. And I'm not talking about the obvious, the fact that patterns of work and, and delivery of entertainment may change. I mean, these are trivial things. We'll adapt to them. Human beings are always dancing with new possibilities for life. Uh, fluidity of memory and our capacity to forget are the most haunting traits of our, of our species. They allow us to adapt to any degree of moral or environmental degradation. Um, financial shadow will cast its way for a while, but unless there's a complete collapse in the financial markets, um, the economy of the world will, 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 will continue. But what struck me as most devastating about the COVID uh, pandemic was the absolutely devastating impact it had on the reputation and international standing of the United States of America. You know, Americans awoke in April when 2000 were dying a day, better than a person every minute of the day, and they found themselves essentially members of a failed state ruled by a dysfunctional government at the head of which was a buffoon of a president who literally was advocating the use of disinfectants to treat a serious pandemic that intellectually he could not begin to understand. And for the first time, as the Irish Times reported, the world's community looked at America with an emotion that they had never experienced before, and that was pity. And as American doctors and nurses eagerly awaited the, uh, the arrival of emergency airlifts of fundamental supplies from China, it's almost as if the hinge of history opened to the Asian century. Now, no empire long endures. Every kingdom is born to die. If you think about it, the 15th century belonged to the Portuguese, the, the 16th to the Spanish, 17th to the Dutch, 18th to the French, 19th to the British. And the British Empire actually reached its greatest geographical extent as late as 1935. But we knew it was in decline. We now know it was in decline by the Diamond Jubilee. And it was certainly bankrupt and bled white by the Great War. And in 1940, America was essentially a demilitarized society. Portugal and Bulgaria had larger armies, and yet within three years, 18 million men and women would serve in uniform as America became, as Roosevelt promised, the arsenal of democracy. It's extraordinary to think what America achieved. For every five pounds of equipment, the Japanese Empire of the Sun got to a frontline soldier, the Americans got two tons. We spat out Liberty ships at a rate of two a day for four years. The record was a ship built from scratch in 15 hours, in uh, four days, 15 hours and 29 minutes. One American factory, Chrysler's uh, Detroit Arsenal, produced more tanks than the entire German Third Reich. Henry Ford's Willow Run plant um, produced a B-24 Liberator with 1.5 million parts every two hours around the clock. We still had enough supplies to send a million miles of wiring to the Russians, half a million Jeeps, half a million trucks, uh, 34 million uniforms. Russian blood beat the Nazis, but Russian soldiers marched into Berlin on boots made in America, 15 million pairs altogether. And in the wake of the war with Europe and Asia in ashes, America created a dominance of the economy, 6% of the population, 50% of the world's economy, producing 93% of the world's automobiles. And that allowed an, a, a truce between labor and capital that gave rise to a kind of a golden era of American capitalism and a vibrant 
a working class, the weekend, whereby a man with limited education could look forward to having a family, buying a home, buying a car, and seeing his children follow him or her into the, the, the workplace. Um, and, and it's not that that was some kind of golden age of America. On the contrary, if you were a woman, if you were gay, if you were a person of color, this was a dark period of American history. But in terms of simple economics, uh, it, 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 it was a world in which there was more equity. And economically, it resembled Denmark uh, uh, more than it resembled the America of today. Marginal tax rates were over 90%. That didn't mean everybody paid that much, but that was a symbol. The average CEO, like my own father-in-law, who's a CEO of Bell & Howell Company, would have made 20 times that of a white-collared staffer. Today, that discrepancy would be more like 400 times. Um, and in the wake of the war, America never really stood down. Since 2001, we spent $6 trillion on military adventures. Since the 1970s, China has not gone to war. America has not been at peace. While well, we've been spending our treasure in foreign engagements, China has built its infrastructure, pouring more cement every three years than America um, did in the 20th century. And this sort of chasm between those who have and those who have not came about in the wake of a war in which we celebrated the individual's iconic intensity. It was sort of the sociological equivalent of splitting the atom. It gave for great mobility and individual freedom at the cost of community. And so today we have a situation where the top 1% have $30 trillion of assets, where the bottom half of Americans have more debt than assets. The top three richest Americans control more wealth than the poorest, 160 million. And COVID revealed the, 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 this chasm of American society as, as, as the, the individual became paramount, community slipped away to the point where Americans almost don't even believe in the notion of society, the idea that anyone owes anything to anyone and everybody must scratch to get anything. And the family declined, divorce rates went up dramatically. Only 6% of American homes had grandparents beneath the same roof as grandchildren. Uh, the average youth by the age of 18 has spent two years watching a video screen contributing to an obesity epidemic so severe that the Joint Chiefs of Staff have called it a national security crisis. America consumes two thirds of the world's antipsychotic drugs and the leading cause of mortality for those under 50 is no longer car accidents, but rather opioid uh, addiction. And so the country that somehow had made fighter planes by the hour couldn't make masks or fundamental tools, cotton swabs. The country that defeated polio and smallpox was led by a president advocating the use of disinfectants. A country that celebrated the free flow of in information and the power of education as the core of democracy found itself ranked 45th when it came to press freedom. And I could name you 11 American cities that are not able to graduate even half of their high school classes. And the myths of America, the moral charters of America came called into question. 
receiving the huddled masses of the world. Well, it was never easy to come as an immigrant to America. Everybody had to claw ashore, but they made landfall. And for Americans to build a wall along the southern border and turn away desperate mothers and separate children from families, that's not an economic and political folly. It's actually an act of treason, because treason isn't just when you give secrets to your enemy, it's when you betray the moral charter and foundations of the own people. Freedom has come to mean in the States the right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry, and that trumps even the safety of children. 346 kids and teachers have been shot in schools in the last decade alone. And there's almost a sort of sense of no longer a benign purpose. You know, when Americans deny science and they flock to the beaches and convention halls, you know, that's not a gesture of, of freedom or strength. It actually shows the weakness of a people who lack the stoicism to endure the epidemic or the fortitude to defeat it. When 70 million people, as Anne suggested, decide to vote their grievance their, and indulge their own petty concerns, clearly, electing someone transparently incapable of doing the job whose only credentials for the job are his willingness to validate their hatreds, uh, to target their enemies real and imagined. What you're actually seeing there is a sign of true decadence because in a vibrant dynamic democracy, nobody votes their grievances. No one votes their indulgences. They vote for the good of the collective, to vote the good of the country, and indeed the world. And I tried to, I tried to put this in perspective from a Canadian point of view um, for my friends in the United States in this article. And look, Canada is no perfect place, but we responded to the COVID crisis in a remarkable way. Uh, in part because we still have faith in our institutions. You would never have a Canadian politician run against Ottawa. That would be an act of psychotic delusion. Ottawa is who we are. That's the heart of our democracy. And Canadians still have a sense of a certain collective well-being. Our notion of wealth is not the currency accumulated by the lucky few, but rather the strength of social relations and the bonds of reciprocity that link all people in common purpose. We have respect for institutions, our healthcare system in particular, that again is focused on the collective, not the individual, and most assuredly not the private investor who views every hospital bed as a rental property. And on July 30th of, of this summer, when American rates of COVID infection nearly topped 60,000, reaching 59,629, which at the time seemed astronomical, and now it's been dwarfed by local numbers uh, of 160 up to 200,000 a day. On that very day, here in British Columbia, a metropolitan population, an Asian city in Vancouver, dozens of flights coming in from the far east in China every day, three hours up the road from Seattle, where the pandemic landed in North America. On the same day that 60,000 cases were announced in the United States, in all of British Columbia, in all of our hospitals, there were just five. And I tried to explain why that might be the case. And I used 
an analogy uh, uh, or an allegory really of getting your groceries at Safeway. Now, when you get your groceries at Safeway in the United States, almost anywhere, we all know there's a kind of a chasm, a social chasm and racial chasm and economic chasm, uh, an educational chasm, a class chasm between you and the checkout person that is almost unbridgeable. But when you, when you get your groceries at any Safeway in Canada, you don't feel that separation. You may not feel a peer, but you feel part of a bigger community. And for the reason for that is very simple. You know that the checkout clerk knows that you know that they're getting a living wage because of the unions. And you know that they know that probably your kids go to the same neighborhood public school, schools that aren't funded by property taxes in affluent neighbors that benefit the children of the wealthy, but by block grants from the government that give every kid equal access to higher education. And more critically, you know that they know that you know that if their kids get sick, they will get exactly the same medical care as not only your kids, but the prime minister's kids. And those three strands woven together become the social fabric of Canadian social democracy. And let me just uh, close with one personal tale. When my mother was 85 years old, um, she got a headache at 11 o'clock in the morning, living alone in an apartment in the city of Victoria. By two o'clock, she was being prepped for emergency neurosurgeon. And that day, her life was saved by a Canadian immigrant. And remember that in Canada, immigration is celebrated. Half the population of our biggest city, Toronto, is not only of different ethnic origin than the Irish and Scots who settled the country originally, but their half were literally born outside of the country, including the man who saved my mother's life. Now, that same day, when my sister and I got to the ICU, the other bed in the unit was occupied by a small girl from a farming Mennonite family from Manitoba. All the family were around them. And my sister and I were thinking, you know, we could have paid for this procedure. My sister's a lawyer, I've done well. But that family in any other jurisdiction, certainly in the States, may well have faced a choice between the well-being of the family and the health and safety and life of the child. And we in Canada simply say, that is not a choice that any citizen should have to make in a proper democratic civilized society. Now, in Canada, in Victoria, rather, our fanciest hotel, the Empress, has a policy that any Canadian family member with a, 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 a family member in an intensive care unit at any of the hospitals in the city gets a free room for the night. So after the nurses kicked us all out, the two families roared down to the Empress Hotel together, and we all gathered in a legendary bar called the Bengal Lounge. And of course, the Mennonites don't drink, so I bought them juice or tea or coffee, whatever they wanted. Uh, and my sister had a glass of wine and I had a beer. And then we did a toast. And we didn't toast our loved ones who had survived that day, much as they were in our hearts. And we didn't even toast that genius of an immigrant Indo-Canadian doctor who had saved their lives. We toasted our country because it was our country and our solidarity as a people that allowed this moment to happen. Two families from totally different ends of the political, economic, educational, religious spectrum, geographical spectrum, bound together in grace and gratitude. And for us, that is the perfect expression of our muted patriotism, not 
um, uh, flag-wrapped um, 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 uh, uh, jargon and uh, excitation, but the quiet understanding that we live in a place where our mood and our uh, uh, and our solidarity is created by the mystique of our landscape, where the weight of the north hovers in the imagination of Canadians, where we live still in a place of consilience and cooperation, not a perfect place, but the kinds of bonds that social democracies has. It's also often said that social democracy will never work in America, and that may well be true. But if so, it's a tremendous indictment because in ways America through the New Deal invented the concept of social democracy. And until this chasm um, is somehow bridged, it's difficult to see America's way forward. And believe me, I don't look forward to the end of the American century. If and when the torch passes to China uh, with its policies of press repression attitudes towards the democratic process, attitudes towards minorities. We will certainly be nostalgic for the best years of the American century. Uh, American ideals through Monroe and Madison and Jefferson and Lincoln inspired millions around the world. When Donald Trump said blithely that one day the virus will simply disappear, he had in mind COVID-19 but unfortunately, he may well have been talking about the American dream.